Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Well, um, you, you do see that at the uh, bottom of your announcements, it mentions how we have a, a full 12 days of Christmas. That is forgotten by a lot of folks, um, despite the song. And that's okay. I mean, that's, that's part of what we do is, is we help people remember these things and learn about these things. But with all the excitement and preparations that we've done for Christmas, it can be easy to forget that there are four major feasts of the church that, follow, that fall during those 12 days of Christmas. So December 26th, the second day of Christmas, yesterday was the feast of St. Stephen, who's the first martyr and one of the first deacons. And we have an icon of Stephen just above uh, uh, Steve's head over there. That's funny. Um, <laughs> not, totally not intended. Although once upon a time we had our deacons bench over there, which is why St. Stephen's icon hangs out over there. And then today, uh, December 27th, is the Feast of St. John the Apostle and Evangelist. And we have St. John uh, right above Deacon, Deacon's head over there, so you all can check that out. Tomorrow, December 28th, is the Feast of the Holy Innocents, when we commemorate the children who were slain by wicked King Herod when he was searching for Jesus, uh, which you can read about in the gospel assigned for tomorrow. The old liturgical saying goes, Stephen was a martyr in will and deed. John was a martyr in will, but not in deed. And the holy innocents were martyrs in deed, but not in will. And then finally, to round off this cycle of four major feasts during Christmastide, on January 1st, New Year's Day, the eighth day after Christmas, we have the Feast of the Circumcision of our Lord, which is sometimes called the Feast of the Holy Name, when we remember how Jesus became a child of the covenant, receiving that sign of the Old Testament covenant on the eighth day, as it says to do in the Old Testament, and also received his name at that time as well, where Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law by taking the law upon, upon himself for us. So on Christmas Eve... We heard St. Luke's account of the Christmas story. On Christmas morning, we heard St. John's prologue giving us the bird's eye theological background to Christmas. And typically today, the Sunday following Christmas, we would hear St. Matthew's account of the Christmas story. But, it, but as I said, today is the Feast of St. John, so we'll be celebrating that instead. Now in our prayer book, John is called an apostle and evangelist. That's the title we're given. This is the Feast of St. John, Apostle and Evangelist, which is noting his status as one of the 12 apostles and also one of the four writers of the canonical gospels. Sometimes you'll also hear him referred to as John the Elder, which is based on the title that he uses in the epistles of John. Um, sometimes you'll hear him called John the Revelator or John the Divine, based on his authorship of the book of Revelation. And other times you'll hear him called, this is more common in the Eastern churches, John the theologian because of the deep theology of his gospel, despite the fourth gospel being pretty simple in Greek. Uh, all all first-year Greek students spend a whole lot of time in the gospel of John because its structure is really easy for us. But 
um, as a seminarian, you're spending a whole lot of time in John the whole, all your years because it's very deep theologically. St. John is traditionally seen as the author of five books in the New Testament. So the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, the three Johannine epistles, first, second, and third John, and then the apocalypse or book of Revelation. Some modern scholars aren't quite sure that it's the same John who wrote all these books, but the fathers, the reformers, prior generations were all in general agreement that this is indeed the same John, including, frankly, some of the fathers that knew the man. Um, we have some writings of, of very early second century fathers who did know John personally, or they were students of John's students kind of thing. In the Gospels, we see that John and his brother, his brother James were fishermen by trade, probably working for their father Zebedee, and likely partners with Saints Peter and Andrew, who were also fishermen. Both of these sets of brothers, so Peter and Andrew and then James and John, were among the first of Jesus' disciples. James and John were also previously disciples of John the Baptist, but John, John the Baptist sent them to the Lord when he came around. Their mother, Salome, was also among the followers of Jesus, one of these women who uh, ministered to the apostles, and it seems largely financed the ministry as well. And most scholars believe that Salome was the sister of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So J James and John were Jesus's first cousins, basically. And along with Peter, St. John and St. James formed that inner circle of Jesus followers, kind of his best friends during the ministry. Um, who got to witness events like the Transfiguration, uh, some of what's going on in the Garden of Gethsemane, that the other apostles don't, they're not part of the, um, that directly. John in particular seems to have been very close to the Lord as he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved throughout his gospel. We heard part of that uh, when Deacon Charles was reading the gospel just now. And Jesus on his part gives James and John, the sons of Zebedee, he gives them the nickname Sons of Thunder due to their fiery tempers when they were young disciples. But by the time St. John is an old man and writing his epistles, we see a very gentle and pastoral leader instead. He had mellowed out. The Lord had changed him over the years. At the crucifixion, we see Jesus entrusting his mother to John's care, saying to Mary, woman, behold thy son, and to John, behold thy mother. That's strong evidence, not quite a silver bullet, but it is very strong evidence that the other James and St. Jude were likely either cousins or, or stepbrothers of Jesus rather than half-brothers. That is, they were probably not Mary's sons, because it would be very, very weird for Jesus to entrust his mother to one of her nephews rather than to one of her sons. That's just not done, especially in those days. And especially when we consider that James and Jude become very big pillars of the church, you know, why would, why would Mary be with one of the other disciples sort of thing? We do know for a fact that St. John and the Blessed Virgin Mary later moved to Ephesus where a thriving Christian community would arise and Mary's house in Ephesus is a prime place of pilgrimage to this very day. 
So John was the very last of the apostles to die, and he was unique in that he died of old age rather than as a martyr. That's why the, that's why the saying says that he was a martyr in will, but not in deed. He didn't die for the faith, but he did get exiled to the island of Patmos when he was an old man because he was preaching the gospel and it angered the authorities. It was here on Patmos that he received the vision that came to us as the book of Revelation. Eventually, though, he is released and he spends the rest of his life in Ephesus. Some scholars say that the gospel of John may have been written after Revelation or at least after he was in Patmos. What that means, and this is very intriguing to me, it would mean that that his vision of Christ in his full heavenly glory that we read about in Revelation, that John already had that, and that was on his mind as he's writing the biography of Jesus in the fourth gospel. And we do see that the gospel of John is quite different from the other three. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're very, very similar to each other. And they've been in circulation for several decades by the time uh, the gospel of John comes on the scene. And it seems that John wanted to give a different perspective and to show some different details, not to contradict the other three. Some scholars will tell you that they were representing different modes of thought, but, but... This isn't so much to contradict the other three as it is to provide a different perspective, to fill in some gaps, and to give some theological reflection that wasn't quite there in the first three. It's in St. John's Gospel that we have the deepest Christology, the deepest sacramental theology, and this very typical multiple layers of meaning in the text. John is very much a theological onion in his gospel. That's why he is often symbolized in artwork as an eagle, because St. John takes us to the very heights of theological thinking. Now, our epistle for the day is the beginning of 1 John, and you can find this in your prayer book on page 101, if you'd like to turn there. 1 John 1, 1 which can be found again on page 101 in the prayer book. We read the following. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifested and we have seen it, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So St. John writes as an eyewitness to the incarnation of God the Son. This opening is very similar to the opening of the fourth gospel, which we read Christmas morning. There's a real sensory focus to John's writing that is very appropriate as we remember the incarnation during the 12 days of Christmas. Notice the verbs here, heard, seen, looked upon, handled, declare. This isn't some pie in the sky sort of faith. This isn't an overly spiritualized faith. No, St. John gives us a very crunchy gospel 
a gospel that is rooted in events that truly happened, places that are real and to real people. Um, some of us just this past, uh, past February got to see some of those places. Our gospel lesson from the end of the fourth gospel says, this is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. This is an eyewitness account. Or as he wrote at the beginning of the book, as we read, as we read on Christmas morning, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And St. John has a good reason for sharing this crunchy gospel. He wants to bring people into fellowship with the apostles, with the church, and then by that fellowship to bring them into fellowship with the Lord. He wrote, That which we have heard and seen we declare unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This fellowship brings God's holiness and goodness to us, and then in turn changes us. Our epistle continues. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we heard of him, and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and walk in darkness, we lie, and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. You might notice here something kind of circular in the way that he presents uh, this chapter. This is very typical of, of the epistles of St. John. We, we talked about fellowship, and then about light, and then about fellowship, and then about light again. This contrast between walking in darkness and walking in light, um, it reminded me of what we, what we prayed all throughout Advent in the collect. We prayed, we asked that God's grace, um, we asked for God's grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. St. John is very concerned that we would live lives of holiness, lives of light rather than darkness, lives that reflect the light that is God. But he also recognizes that sin is a reality even among Christians. And indeed, we have to own up to our sins if we're going to be forgiven. But we can trust that Jesus will indeed cleanse us from our sins and forgive us if we do take those sins to him. Our collect then brings all of this truth into this kind of community-wide, this church-wide context. We prayed, merciful Lord, we beseech thee to cast thy bright beams of light upon thy church, that it, being illumined by the doctrine of thy blessed apostle and evangelist St. John, may so walk in the light of thy truth, that it may at length attain to life everlasting through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So Christmas is this time of beautiful lights. Um, we, we, we've seen them as we've driven around the neighborhoods. Hopefully some of y'all got to make it to Wincrest. I did not this year. <laughs> My prayer then is that these lights would remind us of the light of the world. Our Lord Jesus. The light that comes from the Father illuminating the church. 
St. John's Gospel, Epistles, Revelation, and his very witness show us that same light. And that light then leads us to eternal life. And we say this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven.